You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this third day of September 2011. I'd like to welcome all the listeners back to the podcast and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to alternative media websites like BoilingFrogsPost.com, where you can find the alternative news that you won't find in the establishment media. And on the note of BoilingFrogsPost.com, I think perhaps today I should start by clarifying a video that I released earlier this week, and it's a video that is part of the Eye Opener series, a weekly investigative journalism series that I started before I went on summer hiatus and have just continued, and will be releasing new episodes each Tuesday. But... Having said that, as I attempted to make clear in this week's edition, I was only releasing a preview of the actual video itself, because as of now, and going for the foreseeable future, those videos will only be available on BoilingFrogsPost.com. Those videos, the eye-opener reports, will not be available on YouTube. And uh, and that it was the plan from the beginning. Hence, at the end of each episode, I announce that future editions of this video will will be available from BoilingFrogsPost.com, i.e. you have to go to BoilingFrogsPost.com to watch the video. So, uh, starting this week, that's exactly what we're doing. And the intention is, eventually, that uh, Sibel Edmonds will be putting up a subscriber uh, function on her website, and subscribers will be able to see that video, listen to the Boiling Frogs Post uh, podcast that's hosted by, uh, co-hosted by Peter B. Collins and Sibel Edmonds, and read uh, commentary and investigative reports from a number of different writers who she'll be recruiting to, to join the Boiling Frogs Post team. So that is sort of the overall general idea for BoilingFrogsPost.com and where things are heading. But having said that, uh, we are at the moment, uh, Sabelle Edmonds is working on a a plan to try a a sort of a fundraising drive for Boiling Frogs Post insofar as uh, the the idea, although I don't have all of the details yet, so you'll have to go to BoilingFrogsPost.com for the details as they become available, but I think the overall idea is to try to get 500 subscribers to the website by October 1st, and if that uh, number is uh, is met, if that goal is reached, then actually the the subscriber paywall option will not go up, that the uh, videos and reports and podcasts will all still be available freely for download by anyone. Uh, If uh, we're not able to reach that 500 subscriber level, then we will have to put up the paywall and people will have to pay for access. But of course, you'll be able to subscribe and receive those reports. So once again, I will direct you to BoilingFrogsPost.com for now. I'll have more on this as the details become clearer. But for the time being, um, just know that there is going to be some sort of uh, drive for subscribers. So please stay tuned to BoilingFrogsPost.com for more of that. And look for a new release of each uh, eye-opener report, um, probably each Tuesday. Although I, I don't think that's been ultimately decided yet. And on a completely different note, I would once again like to thank everyone for their support of the Corbett Report this week, and all of those people who signed up to be subscribers, and of course all of those people who bought the 2009 Video Archive DVD. Once again, without your support, I wouldn't be able to do the Corbett Report at all, and as you may have noticed uh, in the past uh, few days, I've been putting up a YouTube video every day. Um, I'm going to attempt to put up uh, at least five videos a week now that I'm working on the website full time. And uh, and I certainly hope that uh, everyone out there appreciates the fact that without your support, I wouldn't be able to really be doing this at all. So once again, thank you so much. And to everyone who did order a copy of the 2009 Video Archive DVD during my hiatus, my lengthy summer hiatus, I would like to say that uh, those those DVDs have been shipped off now, so you should be receiving them within a week or so. So, uh, and of course, once again, once I do ship off the DVDs, I do try to email everyone uh, to let them know that your DVD has been shipped. So once again, if there's any problems receiving or playing your discs, just let me know and I'll be happy to send a replacement. And on that note, I think we'll have to, to end this uh, preamble and get straight into the episode because although we usually have a lot to go through, today we have a very, very, very large amount of information to go through. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends, to episode 198 of the Corbett Report, 
further down the 9-11 money trail. Now, of course, today we are continuing our series of episodes about 9-11 leading up to next week's 9-11 10th anniversary. And this week we're going to go uh, and retread an area that we've uh, gone down before in the past, past, namely the 9-11 money trail, which longtime listeners will remember we dealt with way back in December of 2008 in episode 67 of the Corbett Report, the 9-11 money trail. Now, unfortunately, it appears, and I've really just noticed this, that the documentation list for that episode is not there, and I don't know exactly why that is. It must have happened in the changeover from the old CorbettReport.com format to the new format, and that's somewhat disturbing because I don't believe I have any way of recovering that uh, documentation list now. So that is unfortunate, but I will see if I can uh, get that documentation list back up because there were, of course, many different aspects of the 9-11 money trail that we covered in that episode. So I would uh, once again hope that people would go back and listen to that for some of the information that we talked about regarding uh, the missing trillions, which we've talked about in recent weeks, and uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, insider trading and other such things. Um, well, there are many different aspects towards the the idea of a 9-11 money trail, but I think the absolute underlying key for today's episode is not a particularly difficult one to grasp. It is simply that in any criminal investigation, the number one exhortation of all criminal investigators is to follow the money. And there's a reason for that, of course, because the uh, events like the events of 9-11 or any other major criminal enterprise requires money to pull off, and whoever is paying the money is necessarily implicated in those events. Which is why, of course, in the early days of 9-11, much of the investigation of the non-compartmentalized FBI and other uh, agents who truly were uh, perplexed about what had happened and really looking to get to the bottom of it were so feverishly looking for the 9-11 money trail and trying to discover what had happened by sifting through it. And it was in those very early days when there were so many people who were looking into this issue that we started to understand that there was some very interesting financial anomalies about what happened on that day that even to this day still remains something of a mystery. So today we're going to look at three different aspects of the 9-11 money trail and try to pursue some of those leads a little bit further from our perspective almost 10 years later. And let's start by taking a look at the issue of the insider trading, which I'm sure many of the listeners will be familiar with by now and which we certainly have talked about in the past. But let's just go and refresh ourselves with this story by listening to the first or one of the first reports that came out about this story way back on September 20th of 2001, just over a week after the attacks themselves. And this report aired on ABC News. Federal officials have begun a major investigation into whether someone or many people benefited financially from the evil done to the country last Tuesday. Not long before the attacks occurred, there were some financial transactions in the stock market that may indicate knowledge of the attack before it began. ABC's Antonio Mora is here. Whether they ever get to, if they ever get to the bottom of it, it will be astonishing. Astonishing, no question, Peter. What many Wall Street analysts believe is that the terrorists made bets that a number of stocks would see their prices fall. They did so by buying what are called puts. If you bet right, the rewards can be huge. The risks are also huge, unless, of course, you know something bad is going to happen to the company you're betting against. This could very well be insider trading at the worst, most horrific, most evil use you've ever seen in your entire life. One example, United Airlines. The Thursday before the attack, more than 2,000 contracts betting that the stock would go down were purchased. 90 times more in one day than in three weeks. When the markets reopened, United's stock dropped. The price of the contracts soared, and someone may have made a lot of money fast. $180,000 turns into $2.4 million when that plane hits the World Trade Center. It's almost the same story with American Airlines. That's a five-fold increase in the value of what was a $337,000 trade on Monday. All of a sudden becomes what? $1.8 million. And there's much more, including an extraordinarily high number of bets against Morgan Stanley and Martian McLennan, two of the World Trade Center's biggest tenants. 
Could this be a coincidence? This would be one of the most extraordinary coincidences in the history of mankind if it was a coincidence. It is absolutely unprecedented to see cases of insider trading uh, covering the entire world, from Japan to the United States and North America to Europe. ABC News has now learned that the Chicago Board of Options Exchange launched their investigation into the unusual trading last week that may have given them enough time to stop anyone from profiting from death here in the U.S. It may also give investigators, Peter, a hot trail that might lead them to the terror. I think it's interesting to go back and listen to that clip here now 10 years after the events because certainly no one involved in that report was pulling their punches. One of the most extraordinary coincidences in the history of mankind, says Dylan Radigan, who I'm sure some listeners will be familiar with from his own MSNBC show at the, uh, now, but at the time he was a Bloomberg analyst apparently, and uh, pulling no punches about uh, the, the absolute um, certainty that there was some inside trading going on related to the 9-11 attacks and that really is an incredible story and it's one that we've uh, we've gone over a few times in this podcast and in my videos but it's still one that bears uh, repeating and going over so uh, today, uh, in many respects, is going to be a huge data dump, and there's going to be all sorts of links that I really suggest people go and research for themselves and delve into, because I can't possibly do them justice here in audio format in just one hour or so. So I will uh, definitely exhort you, uh, as always, to go to the documentation section for today's episode, but especially go to the documentation for today's episode, because there will be so much of it. So please go to corporatereport.com, click on podcasts, and click on the uh, title of today's episode in order to find that. But I will include a link to historycommons.org, the indispensable 9-11 timeline, and uh, I'll include the basically the search term insider trading in the 9-11 timeline, and it will Basically, it will be an, a nice list of uh, stories related to this all the way from August 6th, 2001, which is the, the earliest date that the uh, Chicago Board Options Exchange managed to uh, peg the earliest inside trades at, all the way down to 2004. And of course, the story does continue after 2004, but the great thing about the 9-11 timeline in all of its respects, and especially here with this insider trading story, is that it sources each and every one of its uh, specific claims and quotes and uh, you can go and, if the link still exists, you can click on it and uh, get that uh, news story right there in front of you. So it's a great way to find source material for this because, of course, it's always important to go back and read the sources themselves and find out the way that this story developed from the early uh, reports like that one we just heard, which seemed to really come down quite strongly in favor of the idea that there was insider trading going on to the subsequent denials of any such trading by the 9-11 Commission and others. And uh, we'll get more into that in a moment. But uh, one of the links that you'll find from from the 9-11 uh, timeline, in which I think is an indispensable link, is a link to an article, a, in fact, a, a scholarly article written by Alan Potishman of the University of Illinois, who was writing in a uh, peer-reviewed econ economics journal called the Journal of Business. And he wrote a paper in July of 2006 that was published in that journal, uh, that which is published by the University of Chicago Press. And the uh, title of the article is Unusual Option Market Activity and the Terrorist Attacks of September 11th, 2001, a typically uh, un uneuphonious title for a uneuphonious uh, scholarly article, but it is an extremely valuable article because it is really the only, I think, scholarly treatment of the issue that I've seen in the public domain at any rate. And uh, basically, Alan Potishman goes and does a lot of fancy things, uh, plugging things into, into various uh, programs and stuff that uh, is way over my layman's head, but uh, I'm able to at least follow the, the thrust of the argument and uh, from reading from the abstract of that article, quote, After September 11, 2001, there was a great deal of speculation that the terrorists or their associates had traded in the option market on advanced knowledge of the impending attacks. This paper generates systematic information about option market activity that can be used to assess the option trading that precedes any event of interest. Examination of the option trading leading up to September 11th reveals that there was an unusually high level of put buying. This finding is consistent with informed investors having traded options in advance of the attacks." End quote. So there you go. If, uh, if any more uh, evidence was necessary that something was really amiss in the, in the weeks leading up to September 11th in terms of the, uh, the put options that were placed on various stocks, 
Well, that is it. Um, that's, a, again, an extremely valuable article to read through. So I'll uh, once again exhort you to follow the link to find out about it. And uh, and this is a, 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 such an overwhelming story. There are so many different pieces and so many, such a large trail to follow that sometimes it can be difficult to put it all together and to put it into perspective. And it doesn't have the... Uh, forgive the pun, explosive type of uh, evidence that you'll find in the uh, the demolition of the Trade Center argument, for example. So uh, it's one that tends to get uh, left by the wayside. It's just about economic matters, and a lot of people are, well, frankly, not interested in it, although it is absolutely one of the, the smoking guns of 9-11 and uh, still a very much an unresolved issue, as we'll see later. But, uh, but I would recommend as one possible source to get a better handle on this topic overall, an excellent and well-researched article by Mark Gaffney called Black 9-11, A Walk on the Dark Side, which was published in the Foreign Policy Journal in March of this year. Now, Mark Gaffney is an, a 9-11 researcher and the author of the 9-11 Mystery Plane, and I'll include a link to that book in case you're interested in checking out more about that story. But he's also writing a forthcoming book called Black 9-11, and that's going to be dealing with some of the financial aspects of 9-11 and how it ties in with the intelligence agencies, and it looks to be quite a fascinating study. And in this uh, excerpt from that book uh, on Foreign Policy Journal, he goes into quite a bit of detail about the insider trading, the investigation, and what we now know and have been able to piece together over the years about what uh, what was really taking place there. So it was my honor in March of this year to talk to Mark Gaffney about that article and about some of the uh, evidence and things that he had uncovered about insider trading. So let's take a listen to that conversation. Uh, which, again, was recorded in May of this year and which is available from CorbettReport.com. Well, um, we know that Buzzy Krongard, who uh, was recruited by Tenet to be his aide, I think he was the number three guy at the CIA, uh, and, uh, you know, there there was... Most of this they managed to keep under wraps, but there was a, a leak into the uh, British press about Buzzy Krongard, and uh, the fact that uh, some of these put options had been purchased by his bank, the bank that he where he had formerly worked, and uh, you know this is very suspicious. And but we never got the lowdown on it because that investigation basically just went away; it just disappeared. Uh, there was never any follow-up. The 9/11 Commission did not go there, the SEC did not go there, and so you know we're left just asking the questions you know we don't know but it's very suspicious well, I, perhaps we assume that uh, too much that the audience is, is already familiar with the, the basic premise of this uh, this story but when we say 9-11 insider trading what are we specifically talking about? Well, there were a lot of different <clears throat> a lot of uh, threads to this story uh, involving uh, bonds the purchase of bonds or treasury note, you know, bonds uh, five-year bonds in particular that were hard to track and hard to trace. There were put options and, and uh, for uh, these airlines that were basically uh, people were betting that they would that they would drastically lose value. And, and you know, and the there were several scholarly studies also of this issue. In the uh, in every in each case, they concluded that the the purchases were way outside the range of what would have could have statistically been expected. And it's so far out that it's very suspicious. And it does support the argument that, that in, these were insider uh, deals going down. And there were other, uh, you know, the, um, in, the, in the sector of the um, military uh, uh, firms like... Uh, like uh, Northrop, and uh, there's a whole list of them. Probably the one that uh, that that went up the most was I'm trying to think of it. It escapes my mind offhand, but they're the, it's the company that builds the uh, the Tomahawk missile, and they went up like thirty some percent. I think thirty eight, thirty nine percent, something like that. After in the week after nine eleven, so their stocks went up. So some went down. You know, the United and American went down. But some of these uh, companies that build armaments, their stock went way up. So, you know, it was people were making money both ways. 
Exactly right. And you also mentioned in your uh, article something that I, I think is absolutely fascinating, but hardly ever gets talked about really by anyone. And that's the uh, 400 computer hard drives that were found by workmen in the ruins of the WTC. Tell us about that right. story. <laughs> that's right. And that's another story that just kind of went away on us. There, was a, there were a couple of initial stories in the press uh, in December 2001 about this. This German company was hired to uh, rec- try to recover data from these hard drives because they had a, you know, they had a uh, a new process using some kind of laser technology, uh, uh, proprietary technology to do this, and they got the contract because they were the best in the world at it, and they were able to recover uh, 100% of the data from a lot of these drives, and uh, this was only, they, I guess, at that point they had only been able. This was early in the process, and when those first stories were uh, ran in CNN, I think there was another on Reuters, and they had only, uh, you know, examined I think 35 or 40 drives at that point out of 400, and it was already very suspicious. Uh, and this, these were the German uh, technicians that were in, the, in, I think, one of the high officials in, in Convar, that company that was interviewed by the uh, two uh, networks. And then the, the story just went away, and we never heard anything more about it. So, yeah, <laughs> I wish I, I mean, I, if I had any contacts in Germany, in fact, I was trying to contact the uh, German uh, uh, von Bülow, uh, Andreas von Bülow, who had been a uh, member of the German go- uh, government in the 80s and was actually had uh, access to classified information. He was on a committee in the German government. I was hoping, I was trying to get a hold of him to, to see if we could, f- could get a resolution here. Maybe somebody over there needs to do some footwork <laughs> and find out what happened to Convar, what happened to that uh, to those hard drives. But we never got any closure on it. <clears throat> it just dropped again. It just dropped out of the news. But you have to you have to think. Uh, well, why? I mean, why was there nothing more on it? And you have to. I think you just have to conclude that well, because they made it go away because the initial report was correct that this was very suspicious and that there this was hard evidence for uh, insider trading. So they made it go away. I could not to, agree more. Yeah, I you think have to conclude that. I, I exactly, and I. I I can't believe how important this story is, and yet, uh, to my knowledge, hasn't really been followed up by anybody. And it's something that I've thought about doing myself, but again, I don't have contacts uh, necessarily in Germany or German-speaking. Well, I suppose there are German-speaking people who do listen to this podcast, so if anyone's listening right now and wants to take up the challenge, please do so. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, let's, let's, you know, get the word out. If you can, uh, we we need whistleblowers and we need investigators in Germany to track this down. It's just beyond my range. I just don't have I don't have any way to do it, you know. Absolutely, or I would have yeah. tried to follow through on. Mm. All right. Well, well, the 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 article that I'm looking at, which comes from foreignpolicyjournal.com, by the way, and I'll include a link in the show notes for this uh, this interview, so people can go and follow them. But uh, the article that I'm looking at is really specifically about the the insider trading and that investigation. But I assume that Black 9/11 as a whole will be a, a sort of a larger project. What what other aspects of 9/11 will you be getting into? Well. Good question. Uh, the first chapter will, I already described the first chapter, uh, will be uh, um, telling the story of Richard Grove, his story, uh, and then that leads right into the uh, insider trading. In chapter three, we're going to look at, uh, the book will look at uh, AIG, the insurance company, and uh, Hank Greenberg, and how, the, and just uh, kind of a look at the corruption on Wall Street. And that leads right in into the next chapter uh, four uh, to the uh, the links between the intelligence community and the drug trade, and uh, that's really fascinating. That whole can of worms. Uh, a lot of it's been act- actually been in the uh, um, in the public sector. You know, it's all its information has been available for many years, but it's just such a complicated story that. You, there's no place you can go to get the whole picture on it. So that's what I I did in that chapter. I tied all this together and showed how, well, both Clinton and Bush are implicated. And, you know, which is why they kept the story, they kept it off the radar screens. Because this, this would have sunk uh, Herbert Walker Bush back in the 80s, even, if, you know, before he ran for president. If this had all come out, he would have, he would have never been able, to, he would have, in fact, he would have been probably prosecuted 
there's a good chance he would have been prosecuted. He, at least at very minimum, he would he would not have been able to run for president. And for that matter, Clinton would have been discredited also. So they did a they did a very thorough job of just covering this whole thing up. And uh, I mean, he just it was it was in it, back in the '80s. A lot of this was already set in motion, and these events were set in motion. That just 9/11 was not the beginning; it was the culmination of a lot of things that were already going on in our country. The corruption of democracy uh, and uh, the increasing uh, control and power exercised by Wall Street and uh, in the financial sector, and the of course the uh, the hollowing out of the economy, uh, the offshoring of jobs, the um, and 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 this was already well, underway in the 90s, you know, well underway in the 90s during Clinton. And then they uh, defeated every attempt to uh, well they they repealed Glass Steagall the, uh, the the controls that had been put in place to to regulate uh, the banking community to make sure they didn't uh, 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 gamble with uh, uh, our money you know and our savings and the checking accounts to keep the investment banking separate from uh, from that and they got rid of that so and then and then they defeated the Wall Street defeated the attempts to regulate derivatives. And that was all basically that would this happened in ninety eight and ninety nine and then we go into the uh you know the huge bubble that, that resulted and uh, i mean it's just been a, a just a, a cascade of things every yeah, all of it happening uh, a bit and and uh, they kept it off the radar screens amazingly you know i mean i I just assumed that through the nineties that Clinton was looking out for our the nation's interests it took i was really late coming to this. You know, I and I woke up later, you know, in horror and realized that uh, I just wasn't paying attention. And I, I don't think very many Americans have been paying attention. Again, 9-11 writer and researcher Mark Gaffney. And that was a, a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and it only branched out from there. But I think what that conversation goes to show is that this 9-11 insider trading story necessarily branches out into the broader question of the financial implications of 9-11. And I think it's uh, no no mistake or no, no mere coincidence that one of the key events that we're looking at in regards to the 9-11 money trail, namely these put options that were being placed on many of the companies that were adversely affected by 9-11, it represents really a bet that the economy uh, of these particular companies are going to tank. And really, because I think that reflects ultimately what ended up happening on a larger scale in the U.S. economy. Uh, of course, 9-11 was a huge blow to the to the economy and really did uh, take a huge toll on the markets immediately. And I think that was uh, obviously something that was quite well foreseen by the real perpetrators of 9-11. So the idea that they would attempt to cash in on that and would, uh, well, perhaps to a certain extent ultimately succeed is, uh, is really quite disgusting, but, uh, but only goes to show that it was just part of the larger economic collapse that was already taking place at the time, and many analysts had been predicting a sh- sharp downturn in October of 2001 anyway, and then when those attacks happened, of course, it was a convenient excuse to blame it all on the terrorists. And, uh, and that's really, uh, unfortunately, what often happens. We have these uh, events that take place simultaneously with large dips in the market. But it's also interesting to think about how uh, what happened on 9-11, the economic calamity that followed, really did precipitate a domino effect that ultimately ended up leading to the 2005-2006 housing bubble and the collapse of that, and then the 2008 bust of Lehman Brothers. Uh, one could draw something of a, a straight line between those events and look at the way that uh, Alan Greenspan, of course, had attempted to stimulate the economy by lowering interest rates to basically nothing and uh, leaving it there for quite a long time and then jacking them up and precipitating the housing bubble popping and all of that. So it really is uh, just part of an economic calamity that took years to unfold and which unfortunately now we are still living through. So it's important to understand where it all sprang from. And certainly looking into the 9-11 insider trading issue is a great place to start because it certainly points to a very, 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 very different uh, take on the matter than what the 9-11 Commission report told us, for example. Um, which is basically that the SEC investigated their little hearts out and they did their best, but 
oh, just gosh darn it, there was just no connection to Al-Qaeda, therefore there was nothing to look at. Because obviously Al-Qaeda did the attacks, and because there was no one connected to Al-Qaeda involved in these trades, therefore we don't have to look at the trades. Now that would be a pretty nice defense for uh, for anyone involved in any sort of criminal investigation if you could just say, well, I'm not related to the guy that you think did it, therefore I couldn't have done it. What kind of excuse is that? But uh, unfortunately, there's no happy ending to this story. There's a very depressing ending that came out in June of 2010, in which we did cover on an episode of New World Next Week. And just as a side note, New World Next Week is scheduled to be back this Thursday, so please stay tuned to youtube.com slash report for the next episode. But uh, yes, unfortunately, in June of 2010, we had this story, which uh, I originally got from Washington's blog at georgewashington2.blogspot.com. SEC government destroyed documents regarding pre-9/11 put options, and in that article he goes through all of the uh, the various evidence that there was huge uh, put options and insider trading going on in the lead up to 9/11, but then it uh, he brings up this unfortunate uh, update from 2010, and I'll read from that article quote: "What were the results and details of the investigation? Apparently, we'll never know." Specifically, David Callahan, executive editor of Smart CEO, submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the SEC regarding the pre-9-11 put options. The SEC responded, This letter is in response to your request seeking access to and copies of the documentary evidence referred to in footnote 130 of Chapter 5 of the September 11th Commission Report. We have been advised that the potentially responsive records have been destroyed. If the SEC had responded by producing documents showing that the pre-9-11 put options had an innocent explanation, such as a hedge made by a smaller airline, that would be understandable. If the SEC had responded by saying that the documents were classified as somehow protecting proprietary financial information, I wouldn't like it, but I would at least understand the argument. But destroyed? Why? End quote. Hmm, why indeed? Why would they destroy documents relating to one of the most important insider trading investigations in the history of the SEC? Well, I just can't think of an answer to that one. It must just be some of that incompetence which seems to have stricken every single level of government and every single agency, uh, both in the run-up to and in the follow-up to 9-11. Funny how that works. Well, at any rate, again, I'll put in the link to that article so you can read it in its entirety. Again, it's a great summary of the 9-11 insider trading issue and its significance generally, so I would commend it to the listeners. But let's let's take a different track now. Uh, the insider trading story is, again, extremely fascinating, and there are so many different threads to pick up on. But let's move right along to a totally different aspect of the 9-11 money trail. And for this one, we're going to, well, once again, take a cue from Hollywood. Get me Inspector Walter Cobb. John, where the hell are you? Water, it's not a revenge, it's a heist. What? There's gold in the Federal Reserve and they took a load of it. They're headed north in dump trucks. Have you been drinking, McLean? Hello, not since this morning. Listen, there's a line of dump trucks northbound on the FDR at about 70. You gotta close the bridge and get some helicopters over there right away. I couldn't close a hot dog stand right now. I'm spread all over hell. What about this damn bomb? I know the 21st president was. It's got something to do with it. John, John, the 21st what? Walter! Shh! God damn cellular phones! Get hold of Munson and Triborough. Tell them to close all the East River bridges north of 59th Street. Look of a dump truck. Dump trucks? The claim says there are dump trucks headed up the FDR loaded with gold. Walter, they don't allow dump trucks on the FDR. Hey! All right. You know what I should argue? I won't argue, no matter how stupid it is. Yes, that is a clip from Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, which came out in 1995 and starred Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, yes, it is yet another one of those bizarre times in which a Hollywood movie turns out to maybe have had some predictive element to it. What possible predictive element could be at play here? Well, let's go through a little bit of the story of Die Hard 3 just to clarify what it is we're referring to here. Uh, basically, um, the hero of the story, John McClane, uh, is put on a something of a wild goose chase by dastardly terrorists who set up a series of bizarre games and things, uh, clues uh, around New York City for 
the uh, detective to follow as he attempts to and ultimately try to defuse a bomb in a New York City school and, and other such activities. But all the time, little does he know what the uh, terrorists are really doing is setting up a mass distraction so that they, in the meantime, can loot the uh, Federal Reserve Bank's gold vaults, which contain $140 billion of gold bullion, and they can ship them away in dump trucks through the aqueduct system and get them out of the city and to uh, safety, I guess. Well, what a bizarre and ridiculous and absolutely far-fetched premise, isn't it? And yet, well, where on earth could we be going with this? Well, let's turn straight to 911research.wtc7.net, which has this article on missing gold, precious metals in WTC4 vault, only a fraction recovered. Quote, The basement of Four World Trade Center housed vaults used to store gold and silver bullion. Published articles about precious metals recovered from the World Trade Center ruins in the aftermath of the attack mention less than $300 million worth of gold. All such reports appear to refer to a removal operation conducted in late October of 2001. On November 1st, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani announced that more than $230 million of gold and silver bars that had been stored in a bomb-proof vault had been recovered. A New York Times article contained... Quote, two Brinks trucks were at ground zero on Wednesday to start hauling away the $200 million in gold and silver that the Bank of Nova Scotia had stored in a vault under the Trade Center. A team of 30 firefighters and police officers are helping to move the metals, a task that can be measured practically down to the flake, but that has been rounded off at 379,036 ounces of gold and 29,942,619 ounces of silver. Reports describing the contents of the vaults before the attack suggest that nearly $1 billion in precious metals was stored in the vaults. A figure of $650 million in a National Real Estate Investor article published after the attack is apparently based on pre-attack reports. Quote, unknown to most people at the time, $650 million in gold and silver was being kept in a special vault four floors beneath four World Trade Center. An article in the Times Online gives the following rundown of precious metals that were being stored in the WTZ, WTC vault belonging to COMEX. The Times Online article is not clear as to whether the $200 million in gold reported by the Bank of Nova Scotia was part of the $220 million in gold held by COMEX for clients. If so, the total is $750 million, otherwise $950 million. End quote. Well, that's a, an intriguing story, and one would think there has to be something more to this. Is there simply a discrepancy going on? Perhaps there was just a mistake in the pre-9-11 estimates of how much gold was in the vaults. Surely we can't be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in missing gold, can we? Well, clicking through some of the links from that uh, article on 9-11 Research, you can find, for example, that there was a New York Daily News article which ran on October 31st, 2001, that had an interesting snippet. Quote, As a small army of federal agents with shotguns and automatic rifles stood guard, city cops and firefighters yesterday retrieved two trucks worth of gold from beneath the rubble of the World Trade Center. The treasure was transported to an undisclosed location in separate deliveries last night. Sources said the load was found in the basement under five World Trade Center, end quote. Well, that's an interesting story because depending on the way in which you read that and the way in you, which you interpret that, it has been variously interpreted to mean that there was gold found under five World Trade Center, not in the vaults under four World Trade Center, and that they had been brought there by trucks, which had been abandoned. Now, again, it's not exactly clear from this story if that is indeed the case, but it does say later in the story that their workers had hauled out a 10-wheel truck, several crushed cars, and mounds of other debris in order to get to the gold. So the question is, was the gold in the trucks? And if the gold was in the trucks under five World Trade Center, well, does that indicate that they were being that the gold was being shipped from four World Trade Center when the World Trade Center collapsed, thus trapping the truck? Because by that uh, story, well, that would mean there was in the process a massive either a massive heist or a massive removal of gold, which would have indicated a perhaps a forewarning that the World Trade Center was going to collapse. Any way you slice it, that's a very intriguing story. Now, this is where the story gets really weird. Because you'll remember that the central conceit of Die Hard with a Vengeance was the terrorists attempting to steal $160 billion worth of gold bullion from the Federal Reserve Bank vaults. 
Now, keep in mind that's $160 billion of gold bullion, and that's in 1995 gold bullion uh, values. And of course, now that gold is trading somewhere over $1,800 an ounce, as opposed to the few hundred that it was way back at that time, we can safely say that that would be worth close to a trillion dollars in today's uh, money. So that's an incredible, mind-boggling amount of money. And it is being kept, or at least supposedly is, in the Federal Reserve Bank's vaults. And the Federal Reserve Bank is merely a couple of blocks away from the WTC. And this is where the story gets very potentially interesting. And once again, we have to thank the original WikiLeaks, Cryptome.org, John Young's site. And once again, I'll direct people to my earlier uh, interview with Cryptome.org's founder, John Young, last year about WikiLeaks and about uh, the whole idea of leaking on the internet. But on Cryptome.org, you can find all sorts of incredible, very, very interesting information. And one of the pieces of information you can find is an eyeball report, which I guess indicates that there are pictures involved of the gold held in the vault of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And uh, this is an extremely interesting page, which includes uh, actual blueprints of the vault and all sorts of information. But this is where the story gets, well, really, really interesting and really bizarre. Quoting from the write-up here on this page from Cryptome.org, quote, There are reports that shortly after the attack on the WTC, truckloads of unidentified valuables were removed at night under heavily armed guard from the basement rubble and taken to places unknown. The threat to downtown Manhattan also might have led to moving the Federal Reserve gold hoard to a safer location for assurance of its owners who could visit more discreetly. Whether any of the Federal Reserve gold was stored at WTC is unanswered. Whether there was a connecting tunnel between WTC basements and Federal Reserve basements is unknown, although an abandoned tunnel of the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad along that route was exposed during WTC cleanup. And there are photos uh, on this page. And the page quotes from the New York Fed itself, which is describing the vault and the uh, security operations there. And it ends that quote with saying, The bank's security arrangements are so trusted by depositors that few have ever asked to examine their gold. And the website notes that that last phrase, so trusted by depositors that few have ever asked to examine their gold, could suggest that the gold is not there, that it, or most of it, has been removed elsewhere to leave the decoy for diversion. That could account for the light security of such great wealth. So again, the idea that the Federal Reserve was uh, being robbed at the same time as the World Trade Center gold vaults were being robbed is an absolutely intriguing concept. And of course, we don't have any hard evidence for that. And we only have those reports indicating that gold had been discovered under WTC5 to suggest that anything was really up. But of course, the huge discrepancy in the billion dollars that were supposedly in the WTC vaults and the 200 million that were recovered is still an open question, which has never been adequately resolved or addressed because uh, obviously there was not a full and open accounting of what was in the vaults in the first place. And, uh, and it just goes to show that those wacky, crazy Hollywood movies sometimes come up with ridiculous, far-fetched ideas that might not actually be so far from the truth. But again, I will leave you to explore those links uh, by yourself, and, and we'll move on to the final section of today's episode dealing with the 9-11 money trail, and let's start looking at a completely different aspect of the, the events themselves, and that's the question of the 9-11 paymaster. And this is something of a meme that started to develop in late September of 2001 and was really starting to reach a fever pitch around the time of the invasion of Afghanistan on the 7th of October, when it seemed that there was a nice, neat little little narrative being developed about who had paid for the uh, hijackers, and that was going to nice nicely tie everything up in a little bow for America and Britain and uh, the other NATO countries that were ready to drop bombs on Afghanistan to prove that Osama bin Laden could be directly tied to 9-11. But oddly enough, just at the height of all of this, just as they were beginning to tie all the threads and the mainstream lapdog corporate media was dutifully reporting each and every twist and turn in the story, it suddenly completely vanished and was completely scrubbed, and they stopped talking about it altogether. Now, why do you think that happened? Well, let's uh, listen to an excerpt from the excellent, absolutely indispensable 9-11 Truth movie, 9-11 Press for Truth, which I would 
wholeheartedly recommend, not for people who are well-versed in 9-11 Truth, but for people who might be being introduced to it. I think this is probably the best film for introducing people to the idea of 9-11 Truth. It absolutely extremely well put together and contains absolutely core bedrock material for uh, for beginning one's questioning of 9-11. So if you haven't seen this yet or if you haven't uh, bought copies and passed them out to people, well, please do so because it's such an incredibly good movie. But let's listen to an excerpt from 9-11 Press for Truth when they talk about this idea of the 9-11 paymaster. But on October 1st, the FBI discovered evidence linking the alleged hijackers and Al-Qaeda by following a money trail that ended at Mohammed Atta in Florida. Suspected hijacker Mohammed Atta received wire transfers via Pakistan and then distributed the cash via money orders bought here in Florida. A senior law enforcement source tells CNN the man sending the money to Atta is believed to be Ahmed Umar Saeed Sheikh. He reportedly is controlling certain aspects of the financial transactions of the Al-Qaeda network. Once a standout student at the London School of Economics, the British-born son of Pakistani parents speaks five languages. The story made news in every major newspaper. With 9-11 Paymaster identified as an alleged Al-Qaeda money man, it seemed that the U.S. finally had its proof that Al-Qaeda was involved the U.S. war on terror could now move ahead. But what most of his post-9-11 reports about Omar Saeed Sheikh had failed to mention was that at the same time Sheikh dropped out of the London School of Economics to presumably join Al-Qaeda. He had also joined the ISI. Arresting officer A.K. Jane says, under questioning, Omar Sheikh admitted he was supported by the Pakistan government's intelligence service, the ISI. He had told me that. He admitted to you? Oh, yes. And after his release, it was very clear that he was provided protection and safe haven in Pakistan with the direct uh, support, with the knowledge, and obviously with the connivance of the Pakistani intelligence. Only two days after the invasion of Afghanistan, the Times of India reported the FBI discovered credible evidence that $100,000 was wired to alleged hijacker Mohammed Atta by 9-11 paymaster Omar Saeed Sheikh on the orders of the ISI director, Lieutenant General Mahmoud Ahmed. Had that been the head of the Iraqi intelligence agency, do you think we would have heard of it? You have to understand that Lieutenant General Mahmoud Ahmed was a key player. William Pepper is an international lawyer and consultant to the Pakistani government. Indian state intelligence came upon this transfer. It was then that the Times of India was able to get this information. And the FBI got involved in this whole situation because this was now becoming very public as a result of the Indian investigation. Though the evidence was never publicly disclosed, Indian intelligence claimed that the FBI had privately confirmed the story to them, and it soon made every major Indian newspaper. In the U.S., only a single news outlet even mentioned the allegation. The information was reported as an Internet-only story on the editorial section of the Wall Street Journal website. It had this cutesy title, but it contained this completely explosive information. After the Times of India story broke, Paymaster Omar Saeed Sheikh was no longer the apparent proof that Al-Qaeda was the sole sponsor of the attacks. Instead, Saeed Sheikh, acting on the orders of the ISI, appeared to be the smoking gun of Pakistani involvement in 9-11. And instantly, within uh, that day, basically, Saeed Sheikh becomes persona non grata. And then a whole bunch of other people are put forth as the paymaster. Over the next several months, authorities began confusing the news media with a bewildering variety of alternate names for the paymaster, each sounding similar to Omar Saeed Sheikh. No, it's this guy. No, it's this guy. They keep changing the story about who the guy is, and it becomes hard to keep track. By the one-year anniversary of 9-11, Newsweek had concluded that the paymaster remains almost a total mystery. The 9-11 Commission 
would ultimately conclude that the question of who financed the attacks is of little practical significance. And in my opinion, it seems to be a bunch of smoke and mirrors to try to really hide the fact that there's money coming from the ISI going to the hijackers. Ah, uh, the old little practical significance quote. I think that's a, a great one to keep up one's sleeve and to put out any time anyone tries to tell you that the 9-11 Commission did a thorough investigation of 9-11. You can laugh in their face and pull that quotation out and uh, and basically uh, give it the der- derisive la- snort of, uh, of laughter that it deserves because it is absolutely the most one of the most galling um, pieces of, of the entire 9-11 Commission report. And that's saying something for such a flimsy piece of... Well, I won't use the word on air, but uh, but I think we all know what the 9-11 Commission report was. And, uh, and it's absolutely ridiculous that in such an incredibly important investigation to come out with a phrase like the, uh, the uh, financing of the attacks, well, ultimately that's of little practical significance. It's just so, so, so much of a bald-faced lie. One would almost have to laugh at it. But of course, if one were, say, a victim's family member, one would have to basically throw up at the, the thought of such a ridiculous... Uh, inversion of the most basic precept of all criminal investigations, which is follow the money. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at this story, which obviously the 9-11 Commission and the Lapdob corporate media would like to keep us from thinking about too deeply because it doesn't fit in with the dominant narrative of 9-11. And we can uh, find out a little bit more about it in a very uh, well-researched and very good article called Updated ISI and the Wire Transfers of 9-11 on the Crimes of the State blog. And this was published way back in May of 2007. And it's uh, good because it contains a lot of information about this story and its greater context and significance, but it also contains a handy timeline of some of the news stories and how they developed in the weeks before uh, it was dropped off the face of the earth. So, of course, it starts on September 11th and notes that on the morning of the World Trade Center being destroyed, uh, Pakistani ISI chief Mahmoud Ahmed is sitting down for breakfast in Washington, D.C. with Senator Bob Graham and Representative Porter Goss, both of whom will later lead the Congressional Committee to investigate the events surrounding September 11th. Well, what a coinkydink. On September 18th of 2001, CBS News reports, quote, Agents have uncovered a money trail that they hope will lead to the hijackers' accomplices. September 30th, 2001, ABC News' This Week reports that the $100,000 money trail can be traced directly to people linked to Osama bin Laden. October 1st, 2001, Judith Miller of the New York Times. Yes, that Judith Miller reveals that the money was wired by someone using the alias Mustafa Ahmad. The Guardian reports that Mustafa Ahmad is the alias for a Sheikh Saeed. That day, an attack is launched on the Kashmiri provincial legislature, increasing tensions between India and Pakistan. On October 3rd, 2001, British Prime Minister Tony Blair releases his report detailing the persuasive case against bin Laden, yet no explicit mention is made of the smoking gun money trail. New York Newsday's reporters Riley and Brune revealed that Mustafa Ahmad is an alias for a Sheikh Saeed, who has been identified as a high-ranking bin Laden financial lieutenant. They also identify him as an Egyptian linked to the 1998 Tanzania embassy bombing. October 6th to the 8th, 2001, Maria Ressa of CNN reports that 9-11 paymaster Mustafa Ahmed is an alias for a Sheikh Saeed, a 28-year-old Pakistani former student at the London School of Economics who was released from an Indian prison in 1999 after being bartered for hostages taken in an airline hijacking that was strikingly similar to the four hijackings carried out on September 11th. Ressa also links Saeed, hereafter known as Omar Saeed, to the October 1st attack on the Kashmiri legislature. The invasion of Afghanistan begins on the 7th, and Pakistani ISI General Mahmoud Ahmed is suddenly dismissed by Pakistani President Musharraf. October 9th, 2001, the Times of India reports that General Ahmad was dismissed because of the evidence India produced to show his links to one of the suicide bombers that wrecked the World Trade Center. The U.S. authorities sought to remove his removal after confirming the fact that $100,000 were wired to WTC hijacker Mohammed Atta from Pakistan by Omar Saeed at the instance of General Mahmoud Ahmed. From this date, an intensive cover-up is set in motion. Omar Saeed Sheikh mostly disappears from the Western mainstream media until his re-emergence in Britain's Telegraph, January 27, 2002. 
Well, very interesting stuff indeed. And of course, this turns out to be the Omar Saeed or Omar Saeed Sheikh, who eventually is uh, charged with the murder of Daniel Pearl. And uh, again, a very, very interesting story with lots of twists and turns. But uh, let's let's start by picking it up with something that uh, John Newman talked about way back in 2004 when he was talking about the Omar Saeed case and its significance. And he was talking at a JFK conference, but he was asked about 9-11. Uh, John Newman, I'm not really sure too much about his background, but apparently he was a former uh, U.S. Army intelligence officer and longtime JFK researcher who has also been an outspoken critic of the 9-11 Commission. So let's listen to what he had to say about the Omar Saeed case way back in 2004. Um, the, the FBI, you know... Al-Qaeda didn't, didn't uh, acknowledge uh, that they did this thing right away, so we thought that they did, and so the big the name of the game for the f- first couple of weeks was to find out the evidence, and it turned out to be uh, evidence of money transfers from the, the United Arab Emirates, and uh, in particular one individual. Um, uh, and so when they discovered these wire transfers, the FBI announced to, to Newsweek and, and, and other organizations, ah, oh, we found the smoking gun linking bin Laden to... To this, to this case. Well, two weeks later, they found out who this individual was. Uh, he was a British agent, Omar Saeed, uh, Omar Ahmed Saeed Sheikh, uh, who had kidnapped Americans, kidnapped British, caused uh, deaths, and who had never been brought to justice because we didn't indict him and we didn't put him in prison, neither the British, because he was our penetration of the senior al-Qaeda leadership, had trained the, uh, the pilots how to live in the West, um, in, in Pakistan and uh, working all the time with the head of Pakistani intelligence and the, the, the two of the three uh, key corps commanders in Pakistan were his bosses. Uh, the, the FBI found this out th- two weeks later when they examined Omar's cell phone records um, and it showed, you know, showed the, the, uh, the conversations with uh, with the ISI chief, that's the, the head of Pakistani intelligence, and how the last $100,000 was actually uh, obtained and, and given to Atta here. And that was that they kidnapped a, an Indian uh, shoe sales tycoon, uh, ransomed about 830 or so thousand dollars from him, sent 100000 of it to Omar and UAE, and that last $100,000 was transferred on August 14th here, with which they used to buy the airline tickets to fly their recon missions and their final flights. But it couldn't have come at a worse time. The revelation of those phone records occurred on the 8th of October, the very day that uh, British and American forces were going in uh, to Afghanistan. And it was about the worst thing you could discover, that a British agent had been let off the hook for his crimes by the Americans and the British, because we thought he was our window, in fact our only window, into the senior al-Qaeda leadership, uh, was a very damaging story for, for Musharraf, who we needed as an ally, for Tony Blair, and for the, the Bush administration. And that was the, who the, nine, the smoking gun really turned out to be, and that story was suppressed. And it, I don't want to, it takes a lot of time to tell you how it was and, and, and what the media coverage was, but within three weeks it was gone. And by the way, he is the person who, who murdered uh, uh, Wall Street Journal reporter uh, Daniel Pearl a few months later. Oh, I see. The reason that Omar Saeed Sheikh was suddenly and completely dropped from all mention of connections to being a paymaster of 9-11 in October of 2001 wasn't because he was, wasn't simply because he was connected to the ISI chief Mahmoud Ahmed, who happened to be meeting with Bob Graham and Porter Goss on the morning of 9-11. It also had to do with the fact that, well, actually it turns out he was a British-born London School of Economics trained MI6 agent who happened to go rogue and uh, become a double or triple agent for al-Qaeda, just like people like Ali uh, Mohammed and other such uh, interesting examples of the so-called triple agents who, who well, they, is recruited by one intelligence agency, recruited by another, but is secretly still working for the first and uh, ends up uh, disrupting things. And, well, we have to cover that up after the fact. Gosh, shucks, darn, isn't that how it always works? And uh, we get even more confirmation of that years later in September of 2006 when uh, the Australian had an article called CIA Paid Pakistan for Terror Suspects. And it's talking about revelations from Pakistani President General Musharraf, who indicated that Omar Saeed, well, he may have been working for the MI6 all along. 
It uh, says that, uh, quote, the president outlines the role played by a former London public schoolboy, Omar Sheikh, in the kidnap and murder of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl in February 2002. General Musharraf says Sheikh, who orchestrated the abduction, was recruited by MI6 while he was studying at the London School of Economics and sent to the Balkans to take part in jihad operations there. He alleges that Sheikh later double-crossed British intelligence. At some point, he probably became a rogue or double agent, General Musharraf says. Sheikh has been detained since February 2002 and sentenced to death. He's being held in a Karachi jail, but British detectives have been denied access to him, end quote. And as of 2011, as far as we know, that's still basically the the case. Omar Sheikh has been sentenced to death and has been not even had his uh, his judicial appeal heard yet, presumably because he's an MI6 agent and they're not going to to do anything to him. Just as after the uh, uh, 1999, when he was uh, eventually released um, by a, an elaborate airplane hijacking plot that got him released from jail for his taking part in uh, a kidnapping of British tourists in 1994, well, when he was released, he was able to return to Britain absolutely unimpeded with complete immunity and impunity not once but twice and uh well if that doesn't say something about his uh, secret agent status i'm really not sure what does um again it's just another one of those uh those double agents who ends up becoming a triple agent and double crossing the the people that he was supposed to be double crossing for and it's just one of those stories of uh, people who get out of the control. And thus, thus, it has to be covered up. His role has to be covered up in the whole story. That's why the whole $100,000 story became kind of covered up. And then they were actually switched laughably enough to a different Mustafa Ahmed. Although that had originally been identified as Omar Sheikh, there turned out to be a different Mustafa Ahmed who turned out to be the actual paymaster. And it becomes a very, very complicated and long story. But uh, in order to really understand what this story is about, of course, we have to really drill down and really question all of the underlying assumptions of that story. And one of the main assumptions underlying the entire $100,000 wiring story is the idea that Mohammed Atta and the other alleged hijackers really were hijackers and they really were responsible for what we saw in 9-11. If we accept that basic premise, then we have to accept so much of the official 9-11 story, or legend, to speak in intelligence parlance, then we might as well just accept the 9-11 Commission report and just accept that this was just a failure of imagination. And by, by gosh darn shucks, it's just uh, too, too, too much for the mere intelligence agencies to have handled. And, well, you know, there has to be some cover-up after the fact. Otherwise, you know, people would be losing their jobs and things. So even when we find out that Omar Saeed Sheikh well, he was the paymaster and he wired the $100,000, but oh, it traces back to the ISI and the ISI works with the CIA and it turns out to be an agent that got out of their control, blah, blah, blah. It still strengthens the official 9-11 story. So at this point, I'm going to direct you to an article which once again, I cannot recommend highly enough. I recommended it a few episodes ago at the end of uh, episode 196. I'm sorry, 195. And I would like to once again recommend it here because it is so important. It really is one of the most important articles I've ever read. And it really has even got me to question everything that I hold to be true or all of the assumptions that I've made about 9-11 and what they really mean. It's an incredible article. It's by Keim Kupferberg. It's from globalresearch.ca. It was published on 21st of October 2003, and it's called There's Something About Omar, Truth, Lies, and the Legend of 9-11. I was going to read a representative sample of this article, but there is just absolutely no way to do it justice by reading a sample from it. And uh, I was even thinking about reading the entire thing, but honestly, that would take about five hours to read it all out. And uh, I just don't have physically the time to do that for you. So maybe one day I will actually read this because I think it is that important that it really needs to be heard and seen by as many people as possible. But once again, I'll just tell you to, uh, to go to the link and read this article for yourself. I guarantee you it will leave you with things to think about. But the, I guess the ultimate premise, the ultimate underlying idea of this article is that uh, using Omar Saeed Sheikh as an example, uh, Kaim Kupferberg 
absolutely, totally, and completely deconstructs not only the official legend of 9-11, which we know is full of holes and we know is just a cover story, but he also deconstructs the counter-legends, which have been carefully crafted for people to fall into as a way of, once again, obfuscating who is really behind the plot. And there have been lots of juicy tidbits and details that have been conveniently left out like pieces of cheese left in mouse traps for people to come along and nibble on and get smashed by and uh and one a great example is something that's come up quite recently with richard clark's quote-unquote revelations about uh, george Tenet, uh, the director of the cia who deliberately withheld information about the two of the hijackers that the cia knew to have been in the country in, in the u.s for up to a year before 9-11 again once again it's the hijackers and it traces back to al-qaeda and uh, this time the implications might be something along the lines of well these men were being handled by saudi intelligence and therefore since it traces back to the saudis and the saudis are in bed with uh, the bushes and and uh, the uh, the American uh, Anglo aristocracy. Well, well, then we can't really uncover that. That's why it's being covered up. So it all, again, it all points back to Sa- the Saudis, and of course, the twenty eight redacted pages in the the House nine uh, eleven uh, report points back to the Saudis. And so, so that's an example of a counter legend. All these pieces that lead back to Saudi Arabia. It must be Saudi Arabia. Of course, there are other pieces that lead people to to Israel. It's all Israel and the neocon cabal. There are other pieces that lead people back to Pakistan. It's all ISI. They they double crossed us, and etc 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 and this article by Kaim Kupferberg is an absolute tour de force in deconstructing all of these various counter legends and going through the entire development of the Omar Saeed Sheikh legend and how that relates to to 9-11 and what it really reveals about how the real perpetrators of 9-11 can use all of these things as cutouts and limited hangouts so that when the official story if it ever falls apart when it starts to truly fall apart they can just basically mainstream one of these uh, suppressed alternative uh, counter legends and still avoid having people really come to the bottom of what was happening on 9-11 once again i absolutely cannot do this article justice all i can do is say if you trust anything i've ever recommended or even just if you think that i have ever pointed you in a direction of interesting information then please take the time to go and read this article and it is one of the longest articles that i have ever taken the time to read in its entirety online on my computer screen because it's uh, difficult to read extremely long things on a computer screen but honestly i've been in rapt attention reading this article which i can't believe i've only discovered recently it's just so full of incredible information so i will leave you there because that is truly a great place to start really going down the rabbit hole of the the money trail of 9-11 but on that note i think we're going to have to leave it for today uh we've gone through an incredible amount of information so once again i will just exhort you to go to the documentation list for today's episode and go through all of the different documents that i pointed out today because the 9-11 money trail once again is one of the the really key and crucial aspects of the entire 9-11 operation and if we can truly get to the bottom of the real 9-11 money trail not the counter legends that are left out to to lead us along down uh, rabbit holes that don't go anywhere but if we could truly get to the bottom of that then absolutely counter to the 9-11 commission we can say it is of complete significance and that's it for this week and that's it for episode 198 and this is our last episode before next week's which will be released the day before 9-11-2011 and episode 199 is going to be an absolutely unprecedented episode of the Corbett Report I can't even begin to describe uh, how much work I'm being, I've been putting into this and how much is going to be put into this episode uh, coming up next week and I truly hope that it's going to be the most powerful episode I've ever released. So please stay tuned for next week's episode 199 of the Corbett Report. And once again, if you do appreciate the information I'm putting out here and putting together, please consider becoming a subscriber and uh, donating 100 Japanese yen a month. That's about uh, just over a dollar a month to help keep this information coming to you. And on that note, let's leave it there. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me for episode 199 of the Corbett Report next week.